Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly show bringing you news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 11th of March for the listening week that begins the 12th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening this week with local entertainment news for the Denver Boulder region. Theater. This comes from Boulder Weekly, March 9th edition, written by Tony Tresca. Heavy Hitter. The true story of the first woman to play baseball in the Negro League's gets theatrical treatment at Aurora Fox Arts Center. Despite being the first woman to play professional baseball as a regular on a men's league team in the United States, Tony Stone's place in history was largely ignored for decades. That's what drew director Kenny Moten to her story. Even though she has been getting more recognition recently, most people I talk to don't know her, says Moten. A 2022 True West Award winner, pardon me, whose production about Stone's life is set for its Colorado premiere at the Aurora Fox Arts Center on March 10th. He went on, Tony's journey is one of the great American stories that you wonder why you've never heard of. So I'm eager for people to learn more about who she is. Linda R. Diamond's play explores Stone's passion for baseball, beginning with her love of the game as a young girl. Though she was relentlessly mocked by her teammates and doubted by others, Stone persisted, and against all odds, she broke into the male-dominated world of sports, playing on the Negro League All-Star Team, the New Orleans Creoles, and the Indianapolis Clowns. Moten says, One of the big things that drew me to the show was the passion Tony was pardon me, was the passion Tony has for baseball. There is so much trauma in the story of black people in America. While that struggle is evident in Tony's story, she also took great pride in the fact that she was able to play baseball professionally. So rather than focus on the sadness and trauma, I wanted to spotlight Tony's joy, love, and passion. If she could marry baseball, she would. Moten first encountered Stone's story while reading Curveball, the remarkable story of Tony Stone, written by Martha Ackerman. Pardon me, that's Martha Ackman. A few months later, Helen Murray, the former executive producer at Aurora Fox, asked Moten, who was working on Freaky Friday the Musical for the theater in 2022, if he would read St Tony Stone to see if he was interested in working on the play with the company. Although Moten was a little nervous to direct a play after spending so much time working on musicals, he agreed to the project because he was so attracted to Diamond's themes of black excellence and perseverance, as well as his desire to work with the theater again. The fox always feels like home, says Moten. The thing I love about this theater is their willingness to produce stories that other companies aren't. I'm not sure another theater in Colorado would produce Tony Stone, which has worked out for me because it's led to such a nice collaboration with their team. 
Moten suggests that one hurdle for producing the script is the difficulty of the play's title role. The lead actor is on stage for almost the entire performance, says Moten, and delivers 80% of the show's dialogue. Inter-Colorado educator, producer, and performer Kenya Mohogany Farshaw, who showed up at auditions and impressed Moten with her ability to relate to the material and bring it to life. I went into the audition against about three other women, and from the beginning I had the feeling it was mine because I felt very connected to her story, says Fashaw. Her mind was very intriguing to me, the way she questioned things and how she couldn't understand relationships. I discovered through my research process for the character that Tony was autistic and not into dating because baseball was her love. If she could marry baseball, she would. From under the rug to out of the park. Moten was confident that Fashaw was would be able to channel Stone's devotion into her performance due to pardon me, due in no small part to her intense real life work ethic. That intuition was pardon me, that intuition was confirmed when Fashaw arrived at the first rehearsal with Act One completely memorized and already making strong acting choices. But Fashaw isn't the only one enjoying the limelight in Tony Stone. She is joined by an eight-person ensemble of multi-generational black actors who play Stone's teammates, along with spectators and other characters she meets along the way. This is a great blend of black actors across generations, says Moten. We have so many great up-and-comers, like Eden and Mikhail Cooley, who are joined by legions, pardon me, who are joined by legends, like Dwayne Carrington and Don Randall. I think audiences will enjoy seeing people who have been around the black community for years get an opportunity to shine. Ultimately, Fashaw wants her portrayal of Stone's perseverance in the face of adversity to illuminate a once-hidden chapter of history for local theater goers. And when the curtains close, she hopes the audience leaves inspired to break barriers and boundaries in their own lives. Tony Stone had been swept under the rug by history and hasn't had her story told in its fullness, says Fashaw. I believe this play will encourage audiences to follow their dreams. Tony persevered through instances of racism and sexism to do what she loves, and I admire that she was able to be great in a world that didn't want her to be. This play is on stage Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sundays at 2 p.m. March 10th through April 2nd at Aurora Fox Arts Center, 900 East Colfax Avenue in Aurora. Price $28. Next from the Dance World. This written by Jesse J. Gray. In Motion. Julia Chigamba brings Zimbabwe to Boulder. When Julia Chigamba takes the stage at Boulder's E-Town Hall next week, she'll bring generations of experience with her. The founder and director of the Chinyakare Ensemble, a California-based collective of musicians, performers, and teachers of Zimbabwean music and dance, 
comes from a long line of influential artists dedicated to preserving and sharing cultural traditions of the Shona, pardon me, of the Shona people. There was no choice but to be into this music and traditional dance, she says. My mom, my dad, my grandparents, they grew up playing music and holding ceremonies for communities and families, and for ourselves too. It was food and drink and blankets for us and our family. It's who we are. In addition to that deeply rooted connection to the culture of her ancestors, Chigamba performed with the National Dance Company of Zimbabwe before moving to the United States in 1999. In the decades since, she has regaled audiences across the world with the traditional dance and music of Zimbabwe and Southern Africa, including a visit to Boulder 15 years ago for a residency at Kutundara Studios. Founded in 1999 by local Zimbabwean music champions, Amy and Randy McIntosh. This concert, in some ways, is a homecoming for Julia, says Kutundara Executive Director Amy McIntosh. It's a chance for her to reunite with the Boulder community and bring that flavor of traditional drumming and dance to the work we already do here. For the married team behind the long-running studio, the benefits of that work go beyond the simple musicality of an art form that has taken root here in Boulder through studios like Kutandara and learning institutions like Naropa University. Built on a collection of percussive, percussive pardon me, instruments like the mbira, ngomba, marimbas, and chipandani, the music also brings people together. No small detail as the world continues to reemerge from a cocoon of quarantine and social distancing. One fun thing about the music of Zimbabwe is that many people can play xylophone-like instruments simultaneously, says Randy McIntosh, and so it's a rigorous workout. But it's also social and can give you spiritual meaning all at the same time. When it comes to sharing that meaning with others, Chigamba's latest stint in Boulder included three days of leading classes in traditional Zimbabwean dance for all experience levels at the Spark and Streetside Dance Studios. But the main event takes place during a special upcoming performance benefiting Kutandara's Moon and Stars Foundation, which is a 401c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering connection through group percussion. I want the audience to experience the power of community when people work together and rise together, Chikamba says. This music is powerful and it brings people together. Maybe it can influence them to be part of it. In that way, the music grows like a spider web. Kutundara Winter Concert Feet, Julia Chigamba, Dance with the Moon, 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 15th at E-Town Hall, which is at 1535 Spruce Street in Boulder, $30. And the Harlem Globetrotters at First Bank Center. That would be Saturday, the March 11th. Pardon me while I interrupt myself and correct an earlier statement that this was being recorded on the 11th. No, it's being recorded on the 10th. For the listening week, that begins the 11th. And the Harlem Globetrotters will be on Saturday at 2 p.m. the 11th at First Bank Center in Broomfield. Tickets start at $20. 
For nearly a century, the Harlem Globetrotters have combined athleticism, comedy, skill, and live performance for millions of giddy showgoers. Take the family down to First Bank Center this weekend for a can't-miss exhibition of high-flying dunks, loop-de-loop passes, half-court shots, hilarious antics, and plenty of crowd participation. And two from the art studios locally, we have Black Futures in Art, colon, We're Not Just History, showing at the Dairy Arts Center, 2590 Walnut Street in Boulder, through April 7th, and that's free. And Explorations of Resilience and Resistance, Our Backs Hold Our Stories, is on display at the East Window Gallery, 4550 Broadway, Suite C in Boulder, through June 28th. And that is by appointment only, but it is free. Moving to the root.com, sticking with the entertainment world for now, um, we have 2023 Oscars. If you don't know who Brian Tyree Henry is, pardon me, I'll start over. If you don't know who Brian Tyree Henry is, here's why you should. It's beyond time for us to talk about the gift that is the Atlanta and Marvel star. This was published on the 10th, written by Chanel Janai. Whether you know 2023 Oscar nominee Brian Tyree Henry as Paperboy from Atlanta, Lemon from Bullet Train, or Fastos from Marvel's Eternals. I may have mispronounced that, Fastos. You know he's been on your screens in an increasing amount over the last several years. And if you haven't been paying attention to the Yale School of Drama grad, here's why you should. Not only is he up for Best Supporting Actor at this year's Academy Awards for his role in the critically acclaimed Apple TV Plus film Causeway, but he's been consistently putting out nuanced performances since he appeared on Atlanta in 2016. Henry turned what could have been a stereotypical rapper portrayal in a dramedy in another's actor's hands, pardon me, another actor's hands, into something with so much depth and layers, it's no wonder he earned an Emmy, SAG, and Critics' Choice Award nomination for that work. In the 2018 Viola Davis film, Widows, Henry's turned toward malice as a corrupted yet charismatic politician and crime boss still shakes me every time I think about it. Not only of what he did or said, to be clear, Daniel Kaluuya had some of the most frightening moments in that movie, but because of how he did and said it. And that seems to be the through line with every one of his performances. Henry never does the most, but just enough. He never overacts or underacts, but instead portrays these characters within the space that's somewhere perfectly in the middle. It's almost as if he acts with an invisible bungee cord attached to his talent, allowing him to go as far as he needs to in order to properly convince audiences of his portrayals before reeling it back in and keeping us guessing. He's a scene-stealer's favorite scene-stealer, and whether he has a little or a lot of time on screen, he makes the most of it in every frame. 
Looking at you, if Bill Street could talk, and this is us. The only thing that's perhaps most frustrating about him as a performer is that the powers that be seem to always put him in a supporting role when it's clear to anyone paying attention he's got what it takes to deliver as the lead. Hopefully now that he's gotten a cosign from the Academy, this will signal those in charge to give us what we all need. He is a true gift, and whether or not he takes home the gold on Sunday, it needs to be known that he's already a winner to us. We're rooting for you, Brian. Next, some news from the fashion world. This one's written by Angela Johnson. It was posted February 22nd. Barbie's getting a makeover from Beyonce's stylist. Barbie's global Instagram platform will be lit up with looks today from award-winning costume designer and stylist Zarina Akers. Since 1959, Barbie has always been synonymous with style. Who could forget the leg warmers in the 80s and the totally hair Barbies of the 90s? Now, nearly 65 years after she first hit the market, Barbie is joining forces with Emmy Award-winning costume designer and stylist Zarina Akers for another seriously stylish makeover. Closing out Black History Month, the Akers Barbie collab is an editorial style series that celebrates representation and reflects Barbie as an icon through the lens of black culture. The collection drops today in a series of posts on Barbie's global Instagram platform at Barbie Style. With a well dressed client list that includes Chloe, X Halley, Nicey Nash, Megan the Stallion, and Lotto, Zarina Akers knows a thing or two about fashion. She was also personal stylist and wardrobe curator for none other than Queen Bay herself. Akers founded Black Owned Everything in 2020 to elevate black owned fashion, beauty, and lifestyle brands by connecting them to the global marketplace. But while she's working with some of the hottest stars, the opportunity to dress this iconic doll was like a dream fulfilled. Partnering with Barbie and getting to dress yet another icon in such a full circle, pardon me, is such a full circle moment for me. Barbie and Mattel were such a huge part of my childhood and are so nostalgic for me. I'm so excited to reimagine Barbie's style and help inspire the next generation of fashionistas to dream big, says Akers. And Akers adds that she's been adding her personal touch to Barbie's style since she was a kid. For me, Barbie was one of my earliest forms of representation. My aunt would buy me the prettiest black Barbie dolls to play with. She still does sometimes. It was very important for us to see ourselves in the toys we played with and for our dolls to have multicultural, quote, friends. Whether I was making clothes for my Barbie dolls or styling their hair, I was able to practice different ways to explore creatively as it related to image, appearance, and lifestyle. I still want my Barbie Corvette, she said. Next, also written by Angela Johnson, posted on February 24th. Men's fashion. We asked a celebrity menswear designer what makes a well-dressed man. With clients like Two Chains and Wes Moore, menswear designer Miguel Wilson knows a thing or two about making men look their best. 
Celebrity menswear designer Miguel Wilson has been an authority on men's fashion for over 20 years. He's the owner of Miguel Wilson Collection, a luxury men's fashion label complete with suits, shirts, accessories, and his signature wedding collection. With stores in Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and Miami, and a showroom in New York City, he's helped men all over the country look their best. Wilson has dressed rapper Two Chains, producer Will Packer, Nayo, and Real Housewives of Atlanta husbands, Todd Tucker, Peter Thomas, and Michael Sterling. And he recently made history designing custom suits for Governor Wes Moore, Maryland's first black governor, for his inauguration and inauguration ball. Wilson says the inspiration for his style comes from his father and grandfather, who were both well-dressed men. And now he's paying it forward on a mission to help other men look their best. So we thought he would be the perfect person to ask what every well-dressed man needs in his wardrobe. According to Wilson, color is one of the best ways to level up your look. And while he admits that some of his clients are resistant to the idea when he suggests it, once they see how good they look, they quickly come around. He says, men are visual, so there's no better way than letting them see themselves in the clothes. Most men's closets lack excitement. They actually have a lot of duplication of the same stuff. I like to show guys the possibilities and let them see themselves so they can get comfortable. But if you're not ready to rock a purple jacket just yet, Wilson suggests starting with your accessories. You can start with a pink pocket square. It's just about what makes him feel comfortable, he said. A man should have a nice navy blue suit that works for a business meeting or a cocktail party, he said. I like that you can split a nice blue suit up and wear the jacket as a sports coat or wear the pants separately with another sports coat. I like clothes that work for multiple purposes in multiple ways. Wilson adds that guys who find themselves invited to lots of formal events should own a nice black tuxedo. You don't want to prevent yourself being allowed to enter the room because you don't have the uniform, he says. When asked what guys he thinks have great style, pardon me, I should say, when asked what guys he thinks have great style, Wilson says Eric Robeson, Two Chains, and Lil Bozy are at the top of his list. Pardon me, Lil Boozy. Believe it or not, he wears the hell out of any suits. Oh, pardon me again. Believe it or not, he wears the hell out of my suits. Most people are used to seeing him in streetwear, but he really wear, wears suits well. And while he has dressed lots of celebs, Wilson says one of his dream clients is none other than Barack Obama. It would be an honor to dress him, he said. Still reading from The Root. This one also written by Angela Johnson. It was published on March 4th. Brilliant black history author opens up about living with lupus. The New York Times bestselling author and professor Imani Perry shares her story in a new Audible original. We know Imani Perry as a brilliant New York Times bestselling author who won the 2022 National Book Award for Nonfiction for her book, South to America, a journey below the Mason-Dixon to understand the soul of a nation. The Ivy League-educated professor of African-American studies, 
is frequently called upon as an expert who can eloquently break down black history and culture. But in the new Audible original titled A Dangerously High Threshold for Pain, premiering March 2nd, we see a different side of Perry, one that is both vulnerable and hopeful. In this beautiful story of pain, hope, and acceptance, Perry opens up about her ongoing battle with lupus, an autoimmune disease that attacks multiple organ systems. The disease, three times more common in African-American women than white women, can cause varied symptoms, including joint pain and swelling, fatigue, memory issues, and hair loss. And although the symptoms come and go, a flare-up can be debilitating. From the moment she describes the first signs that something is wrong, Perry draws listeners in, and we follow her as she grapples with Lupus's impact on her body, career, and personal life on a journey to acceptance of her own vulnerability. The Root caught up with Perry to learn why she thought this was the right time to share her story. For years I wanted to write about living with chronic diseases at various stages, and often when I would propose it, pardon me, it would be rejected, she said. When this opportunity came up with Audible, it happened to intersect with a time in my life when I was thinking about how to live with diseases differently in the wake of the pandemic. So it just felt appropriate. As a mother living with epilepsy, I couldn't help but empathize with Perry's description of the constant conflict between her health issues and caring for her young children and how she eventually came to accept that taking care of one may come at the expense of the other. And in our conversation, we agreed that the guilt we feel is common among black mothers living with chronic illness. There's no way to balance it all fully. So sometimes, the question is not whether you succeed at everything, but making the right choice about which things you fail at, she said. And the choice is sometimes, I'm going to fail in this way to save my life, or I'm going to fail in a particular way so I can tend to my children. Perry also takes time to explore the role race and gender have had on how she lives with her illness, including how she's been treated by medical professionals. And I was both irritated and heartbroken by the way she describes how her pain and her privacy have been violated by those who refused to validate her experience. She says, To be sick, to have a diseased body, disrupts any zone of privilege and its protections, regardless of appearance or category. In my life, I believe that race... Gender and simply having diseases have operated in some of my worst experiences. Perry says over time she's learned to manage it all in a way that works for her and her family, and she's hopeful that others will be inspired by her story. Part of it has been being strategic about how to get my work done, how to choose my battles, what kinds of relationships to build, she said. I didn't talk about my illness in the first part of my career because I was worried about the backlash. And that's part of the reason why I'm so open now. I get messages all the time from people who say they don't feel comfortable sharing their stories 
but that it matters that I shared mine. Our next article will be one of our in-depth articles for this week. It comes from the New York Times Style Magazine. Building a New Canon of Black Literature Which older novels, plays, and poems by African-American writers are being, or should be, rediscovered? This is written by Adam Bradley. Published March 3rd, updated March 7th. I first heard the name J. California Cooper last November. Cooper, who died in 2014 at age 82, was the author of five novels, seven short story collections, and 17 plays. Her books are folksy, funny, and wise. They center on black characters, most of them women, as Alice Walker, who is 79, who published Cooper's debut collection of fiction called A Peace of Mine in 1984, wrote, Cooper reminds us of Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. Why had I never heard her name? I've been an English professor for nearly two decades, teaching surveys of black American literature, even seminars focused on black women writers. Before that, I was a graduate student at Harvard during the era of the Black Studies Dream Team, learning from scholars like Cornel West and Henry Louise Gates, Jr., and writing a dissertation that includes chapters on Walker, Toni Morrison, and Gail Jones. But before that, while growing up in Salt Lake City in the 1980s and 90s, I looked to black literature as a lifeline. I read every book I could find, including works by Ismail Reed and Paul Marshall, Ernest J. Gaines, and Maya Angelou, all Cooper's contemporaries. Since childhood, I've been amassing a collection of black fiction, drama, and poetry that exceeds a thousand volumes. So how is it that Cooper escaped my willing attention? I count this late discovery as both a correction of personal oversight and evidence of something far more significant. The emergence of new arbiters of literature, or pardon me, of literary culture, reshaping the canon of black American literature. The word canon, C-A-N-O-N, comes to English by way of the ancient Greek, K-A-N-O-N, meaning rule. When applied to literature, it refers to a list, actual or conjectural, of great works that define the terms of a literary education. Historically, canon construction is the work of the few, foremost among them academics, who edit anthologies and design syllabuses. But this is changing. I didn't come across Cooper in the pages of a scholarly journal. I saw her name on Instagram. On social media in particular, Cooper has a growing following among black women writers and other creative people who see in her work a model for making powerful, accessible art. Everyone should read more J. California Cooper, says the screenwriter and novelist Attica Locke, 49, whose credits include writing and producing for the TV melodrama Empire. I was, parentheses, I was foolish because I believed in you, you are a fool because you believe in yourself. Cooper's character, Sally, snaps at her big sister, Carlene, 
In her 1994 multi-generational novel of Small Town Life, In Search of Satisfaction, in an exchange that would fit right into an Empire episode. Close parentheses. Among Cooper's fans are the singer and actor Jill Scott, 50, who once flew Cooper out to New York for a performance at Carnegie Hall, and the actor Halle Berry, 56, who first read Cooper's fiction in grade school. This re-engagement with black authors of the past like Cooper is being led by a fresh cohort of literary tastemakers, younger authors in search of ancestors, publishers eager to excavate black literature for passion and profit, film and television executives in search of intellectual property, social media influencers on Bookstagram, blogs and podcasts bringing older works to the fore, Operating outside of academia, these groups are making the canon less prescriptive and more descriptive, a dynamic record of what people are actually reading and enjoying now. If the Harlem Renaissance is commonly understood as a period during which black creatives were in vogue, then we're in the midst of a new renaissance today, nearly a century later, not just of recent art, but of the archive. In 2021, Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind, 1955, made its belated Broadway debut. Beyond Broadway, Lorraine Hansberry's Lesser Known, The Sign in Sidney Brustein's Window, from 1964, began its run at the Brooklyn Academy of Music this past February. On television, a series adaptation of Octavia E. Butler's once-overlooked novel Kindred, from 1979, debuted in late 2022 with several other Butler projects in production or development. In publishing, works are resurfacing from both widely established authors, parentheses, the 2022 reissue of Morrison's 1983 short story Recitative, pardon me, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, in a standalone edition, and from neglected literary giants. New editions of five books by the novelist and short story writer William Melvin Kelly, who died in 2017 at age 79, and a forthcoming edition of the incendiary 1967 novel The Man Who Cried I Am by John A. Williams, who died in 2015 at 89. Together, these efforts are unsettling the story of black American literature. Make no mistake, past generations have labored and sacrificed for us to enjoy such curatorial privilege. A brief history of chronicling the black literary tradition might be told in three phases. During the Harlem Renaissance, anthologies like James Weldon Johnson's The Book of American Negro Poetry from 1922 sought to showcase black artistic achievement for the purposes of racial uplift. Quote, no people that has produced great literature and art has ever been looked upon by the world as distinctly inferior, writes Johnson. By the 60s, black editors took cues from black power politics and the Black is Beautiful movement. In an expansive, though not exhaustive, list posted in January to his blog, the literary scholar Howard Ramsby II identified 127 
anthologies published between 1967 and 76, from the iconic and 1968's movement defining Black Fire, edited by Leroy Jones and Larry Neal, to the obscure 1970s Right On, an anthology of black literature edited by Bradford Chambers and Rebecca Moon. Together, these publications recast the story of black American literature as insurgent, independent, and driven to define a distinctly black aesthetic. But the most important phase of canon building came in the 1980s and 90s, a period that institutionalized black American literature, securing it as a field of academic study. The key book of that time was The Norton Anthology of African American Literature, 1996, edited by Gates and the literary critic Nellie Y. McKay, alongside an editorial board of other leading scholars. The Norton asserted that black writers, in defiance of the racist mismeasure of black intelligence and artistry, forged a tradition in conversation with all Western literature and in relation to, quote, the repetitions, tropes, and signifying that would come to define a distinct canon of black American literature. Quoting, while anthologies of African American literature had been published at least since 1845, the editors write in the introduction to the third edition, ours would be the first Norton anthology, and Norton, along with just a few other publishers, had been synonymous to our generation with canon formation. Ironically, scholars were constructing this black canon just as literary studies were deconstructing the canon of Western literature as a whole, globalizing it, feminizing it, queering it, racially diversifying it. Yet, thanks to the efforts of successive generations, the black canon is now durable enough not only to withstand but to demand attempts to deconstruct and reconstruct what black American literature means. African American Studies remains an archaeological project, says Soika Diggs Colbert, that might be Colbert, 44, a Georgetown University professor and the author of a recent biography of Lorraine Hansberry, titled Radical Vision. She credits a tweet from her fellow Hansberry biographer, Imani Perry, with the insight that being a student of black American literature and culture demands constant acts of recovery. As writers and scholars, publishers and readers think about black American literature now, they increasingly do so with a backward glance for writers and works that have been overlooked or underappreciated, forgotten or misunderstood. Although canons may enshrine the past, they are instruments of the present. So, what do readers require of black American literature today? Works that confront the resurgence of white supremacy. Works that challenge orthodoxies of racial representation. Works that unsettle assumptions about gender and sexual identity. Works that expand the frames of formal experimentation. Works that imagine black futures. Colbert asks, what does it mean for our generation to understand that the work of shaping the canon is incomplete? This essay is one response, proposing five categories of my own in which the black American canon is already, or could soon be, 
growing to embrace under-recognized works of the past and the writers who made them. First category, bad books. What do you show? Almost a century ago, W.E.B. Du Bois asked this of artists in a column simply titled A Questionnaire, published in a 1926 issue of The Crisis, the NAACP's magazine, for which he served as founding editor. With seven leading questions, Du Bois cautions against portraying the race in a manner that might confirm racist stereotypes. It is, pardon me, is not the continual portrayal of the sordid, foolish, and criminal among Negroes convincing the world that this and this alone is really and essentially Negroid and preventing white artists from knowing any other types and preventing black artists from daring to paint them? Implicit in this question is Du Bois's conviction that the only responsible black literature is propaganda, marshalling a benevolent blackness as an antidote to white supremacy's pernicious specters. And what do you teach? In 2006, when I was beginning my career as a professor at a small, predominantly white liberal arts college in Southern California, I taught Pimp, the Story of My Life, which is the 1967 memoir of Robert Beck, published under the name Iceberg Slim. Pimp is a brutal book, unrelenting in its portrayals of sex, violence, and addiction. It helped to codify the conventions of the now-thriving genre of street lit, to which Solya's fiction also belongs. As a young black professor assigning Pimp to students of multiple racial, gender, and sexual identities, I was taking a chance. Fortunately, the class had generated enough trust that we could express ourselves freely, cringing at some passages and laughing at others. I have not taught Pimp since, but I have carried forward from the experience of a guiding conviction that, despite Du Bois's admonitions to the contrary, the black canon must embrace bad books, not works of inferior craft, but works that show black characters courting racist stereotype as the cost of being free. This is increasingly relevant today as black contemporary, pardon me, as contemporary black writers reject the politics of respectability. Two books, Luster and The Other Black Girl, are just two recent books that reveal human frailties, venalities, and duplicities of black protagonists. Du Bois might have thought of them when he thought of Home to Harlem, Claude McKay's novel that showcases all manner of vices in the black urban underworld. He wrote, for the most part, it nauseates me, and after the dirtiest parts of its filth, I felt distinctly like taking a bath. Second category, experimentalists. Wanda Coleman, Los Angeles-based poet who died in 2013, just wanted to be read. Instead, she found her writing labeled experimental. Coleman's work, which also includes fiction and essays, testifies to her fluency with conventional forms like the sonnet, as well as her urge to innovate. She said, I had little interest in piggybacking or social climbing, but a great interest in the politics of literary greatness in America. If I were to achieve greatness, I wanted it to be on my own very stringent terms. Her radicalness... It's not one of formal experimentation, but of accountability for her damaged yet resilient psyche as a child born in 1946 
during Jim Crow segregation. She gives voice to that which might otherwise remain unspoken. Third category, pioneers. In September 2020, Butler, the groundbreaking writer of black speculative fiction, finally achieved her goal of making it onto the New York bestseller, New York Times bestseller list, which came 14 years after her death. Butler's eventually, eventual pardon me, inclusion among the first rank of black American authors is testament to a confluence of factors, especially the emergence of a community of black women science fiction writers with literary capital who have prompted a backward glance in search of their ancestors. Category four, fan favorites. Building canons requires architects, writers, scholars, teachers, and publishers. When it comes to black authors, at least for me as a black woman, so much has been called for us, says Tracy Thomas, the Los Angeles-based host of a literary podcast called The Stacks. Going back to the archive is about trying to figure out why those people were given the magical treatment and maybe figure out who else is there, too. In the 80s and 90s, black women writers finally began receiving the magical treatment. Though literary prizes are a notoriously unreliable way to measure artistic merit, they nonetheless helped bring critical attention to black literature after decades of exclusion. In 1983, Walker's The Color Purple won both the Pulitzer and the National Book Award. A decade later, Morrison, who died in 2019, won the Nobel Prize in Literature. But there's another kind of acclaim worth reconsidering. In the deep strain of populist black American literature, celebrated by readers who prioritize literature's communal function as entertainment, being black in America is work enough. It's all right for reading to be funny and fun, controversial and straight-up scandalous. And such is the case with Terry McMillan, whose novels, including Waiting to Exhale and How Stella Got Her Groove Back, also became films, popular films. And she was the first visible, industry-recognized African-American writer to be unapologetic in promoting her own work. Macmillan had to hustle, compiling mailing lists to connect directly with booksellers. She amassed power, not by the industry, but by her own energy. The final category, Victims of the Jane Austen Effect. In a Washington Post essay, the preeminent Jane Austen scholar Devoni Lucer described how the towering reputation of the early 19th century English novelist prompts writers to follow her formula and for readers to look for imitators. Similarly, through no fault of their own, certain singular talents in the black American canon have at times so thoroughly dictated literary fashion as to render other ways of writing unrecognizable. Conditions in the United States hostile to producing and protecting black art have robbed us of many monuments, upsetting the idea of order. Works lost or never written comprise a canon of their own, forgotten stories of the oral tradition, the brilliance 
of those James Weldon Johnson called the Black and Unknown Bards of Long Ago. The personal archives and manuscript drafts that precarity did not allow their authors to preserve. A testament to the efforts of our ancestors that so much remains and remains still to discover. Next, some more on the line of current events and politics. Back to the root.com for this article from Derek Jackson, posted March 3rd. Democrats, why in the hell are black people moving to red states? Democrats, you're losing your audience, literally. Worse, you're losing it to states virulently hostile to your audience, dripping with politics that run polar to what you preach. In a great reverse black migration, Brookings data says four of the five top pardon me, four of the top five states for black population gains since 2010 are Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida. Black people are driving U-Hauls to Texas, Georgia, and Florida despite voter restrictions. A new Republican majority on North Carolina's Supreme Court is reconsidering redistricting and voting restrictions ruled illegal by the court's prior Democratic majority. Florida banned an advanced placement African American studies course. Texas and Florida are ending diversity, equity, and inclusion in state agencies and limiting the teaching of race in schools. Some observers, such New York Times columnist Charles Blow, I believe that's should read, such as New York Times columnist Charles Blow, Charles Blow, cheer the migration in hopes that it alters red southern politics toward purple. That is a reason to believe that can happen. With Georgia voting a Democrat into the White House in 2020 for the first time in nearly 30 years, and sending its black, first black and Jewish senators to Congress. North Carolina voted for Democratic Barack Obama in 2008. Florida voted both times for Obama. But fixating solely on that lets Democrats off the hook for not protecting, as they say in basketball, home court. The willingness of black people to live in the crosshairs of conservative politics says a lot about what they fled in the so-called liberal North and West Coast. On its website, the Democratic National Committee Party boasts of the decades it has, quote, stood with the African-American community. It says Democrats will promote racial justice with equitable governing and public policy. The party says it will push for a societal transformation to make it clear that black lives matter. But look around and all you see is black people being pushed out of the bluest cities in the bluest states. While Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida have gained 1.3 million black residents since 1995. According to Brookings, New York, Illinois, California, and New Jersey are the top four states losing black people, to the tune of at least 1.5 million black people. Recent stories in the New York Times and Washington Post feature the massive declines in New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. 
In those cities, the cost of living on top of the grinding structural racism in housing, schools, jobs, and entrepreneurship chews away at black people more than red meat southern politics. The Democrats can talk all the Black Lives Matter they want, but the nitty-gritty of a roof over the head and bread on the table is more important than a ranting Ron DeSantis in Florida, a curmudgeonly Greg Abbott in Texas, or a combative Brian Kemp in Georgia. What matters is that black unemployment is higher than Cali—pardon me, that's higher in California, Illinois, and New York than in Florida, Georgia, or Texas. What matters is that one of the 12 most segregated cities for black people, as measured by Brookings, 11 of them are north of the Mason-Dixon line. Seventy years ago, my parents fled segregated Mississippi for Milwaukee. Today, Milwaukee leads the nation in segregation, followed by New York and Chicago. Wisconsin, while not hosting the largest of black populations, nonetheless still made it to the top 10 states for loss of black people since 2015. Based on how black people are voting today with their feet, the Democrats had better hurry up to dismantle the structural barriers on their home court before they are trampled by the exodus. The final article for this week, written by Candace McDuffie, coming from TheRoot.com, it was published February 27th. Right-wing extremists were responsible for all 25 extremist-related murders in 2022. In addition, 21 of the 25 killings were linked to white supremacists. In a new report published by the Anti-Defamation League, it was revealed that all 25 extremism-related murders in the United States in 2022 were connected to right-wing extremists. In addition, it also showed that 15 of the 25 extremist-related murder victims were killed in two of the mass shootings. In May 2022, 10 black people were murdered in the Topps grocery store shooting in Buffalo, New York. The other five were killed in the Club Q massacre in Colorado Springs back in November. During the murder trial for Club Q, which frequently had patrons from the LGBTQ community, police said that the suspect had a neo-Nazi website and frequently used racist and anti-gay epithets online. According to court documents, the suspect in the Buffalo shooting said he carried out the attack because he was worried about the future of the white race. In addition, the reporter explained, quoting, all the extremist-related murders in 2022 were committed by right-wing extremists of various kinds, who typically commit most such killings each year, but only occasionally are responsible for all. The last time this occurred was 2012. Left-wing extremists engage in violence ranging from assaults to firebombings and arsons, but since the late 1980s have not been targeted pardon me, have not often targeted people with deadly violence. The same cannot be said for domestic Islamist extremists, but deadly incidents leaked, linked to Islamist extremism have decreased significantly in the U.S. over the past five years. The ADL Center for Extremism also noted that white supremacists commit the greatest number of domestic 
extremist-related murders in most years, but in 2022 the percentage was unusually high. 21 of the 25 murders were linked to white supremacists. The report also disclosed that nearly all of the mass killings in 2022, 93%, were done with firearms. Well, that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funds from the Boulder County and Denver Regional Council of Governments Area Agencies on Aging. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.